Hey everybody, this is Nick Padiak. You're listening to I'll Be Damned. Uh, today's guest on the show is Paul Federka. I met Paul when he was an assistant director of a show that I was doing. Uh, he assistant directed Come Blow Your Horn, a Neil Simon show that I did at the James Downing Theater in Chicago. Uh, the director was a friend of his, and he Paul decided to just join along as the as the assistant director uh, for the for the first and last time, according to him. Um, but it was it was a lot of fun getting to know him. He's he's an interesting guy, uh, with a very interesting life, and I figured he'd make a good podcast guest, and he did. I went to his home in Lombard, Illinois, to film this episode, and it was we had a really good chat. It was a lot of fun. Some housekeeping stuff before we get to that interview. A reminder that you can always reach me at my website, nicholaspadiak.com. You can also listen to some old episodes of the show there. I am on Twitter at npadiak. And uh, note that I'll be taking a week or two off from publishing these podcasts. I've been pretty busy. I'm going to be extremely busy coming up soon with a show that I'm in. I'm playing Biff in Death of a Salesman at Center Stage in Lake Forest, Illinois. Uh, if you're interested, it's the first two weekends in March it's going to be running. And uh, if you want to come, there are details and tickets at centerstagelakeforest.org. Uh, thanks, as always, to Alex Johnson for the cover art and Matt Pickett for the I'll Be Damned theme song. And here it is. I hope you enjoy my talk with Paul Federka. How long have you been here? God, forever. Uh, 33 years. Really? Yeah. Is that as long as you've lived in Illinois? Did you move? Well, you went to Loyola, right? Right. Okay. So what brought you from, take me from Loyola to here? Okay. Came to, I grew up in New York uh, and uh, came to Illinois to go to Loyola University. Um, I had a, uh, I had a free ride to go to graduate school, so that's why I came to Chicago. So why did you even think about about Loyola? You're living in what Manhattan? Did you grow up in Manhattan? We're in the Bronx. The Bronx. And no, so this is where I was born, but yeah. Okay. So you're you're growing up in the Bronx, go through all of school, high school, everything in the and Bronx. College in the Bronx too, yeah. Okay. Manhattan College, yeah. And then why why Loyola in Chicago? I decided I needed to get out of the city to go someplace else. Mm. And um, there was a high priority back then for finding a town that had two baseball teams because I really, <laughs> really loved baseball and that kind of limited. I didn't, and I wanted to get out of New York. Yeah. So, so that's Chicago or LA, I Chicago. guess, right? Actually, it was, it was also, I looked, at, I, I had a buddy and we both looked at graduate schools for what we wanted to do. And there were about 85 programs in the country about that time. So kind of whittled it down to about a half a dozen um, that were more clinical in orientation. So. so there were only 85 programs that did psychology graduate school? Clinical psychology that were APA approved. So it's very. Okay. It was it was real competitive back then. The, the field has changed now, but um, and um, Loyola, most graduate schools admitted about seven to eight. I think the average oh, was wow. about eight students a year. Uh, Loyola was huge. They had huge funding. We had seventeen in my class, which was like unheard of. Yeah. APA came by American Psychological Association and did our. Uh, uh, Approval. The year, first year I was there, and they said, "Well, you have too many people." And our director said, "Well, do you want me to give the money back to uh, NIMH and to these other 
Well, no, okay, get that many students. So, <laughs> so, wow. So anyway, but um, they gave me money, so I came. Gotcha. So what was it like growing up in the Bronx? It was Yonkers, really, was where I grew up. But then, and then I moved into the Bronx. Um, didn't know any better. Blue collar neighborhood, Italian neighborhood, a couple of Irish families next door, and we were the only Ukrainian family. And everybody had two flats, or they were three, two, three, four story apartment yeah. buildings and stuff. Yeah. That's funny. I'm always fascinated by that. I think that it might start with my generation where we don't, it's like I never think of anybody like, oh, that's an Italian family. Like, I, I don't know what it is, but I know that older generations, even generations older than you, like even watching movies from World War II and everything, it's just like, oh, well, that's, you know, you're Polish and I'm Italian and I'm Irish. And now it's just like, I don't know, people kind of, I don't know what I am, you know? I think the neighborhoods were more ethnic, you know, then. In fact, I was just seeing something here on, on um, what the Ukrainian neighborhood, Ukrainian village, uh, is the uh, number one place uh, sought after in this country. Uh, yeah, it was a survey done of metropolitan areas, ones that are booming for real estate. And the Ukrainian village is very Ukrainian in Chicago, I'm talking yeah. about. And so I think when I was growing up, uh, people did have communities. They had their, especially in the old big cities like uh, New York, um, they had their churches and they kind of stayed around their churches and things yeah. like that. And that's really changed. And I think that that's going to happen in the Ukrainian village now. You know, when I first came to Chicago 35 years ago, whatever, um, 35, 40 years ago, 40 years ago, <laughs> it was solidly Ukrainian. And I've gone down there several times, I mean, to visit and stuff like that. But you, you know, walking through the neighborhood, you could tell that people would look at you. They, they knew you weren't, you didn't belong there. Yeah. Uh, just kind of wondering who you were. Yeah. And, um, and I had been told by natives in Chicago, well, you, you might be able to get a room there in an apartment because they won't rent to anybody unless you're Ukrainian. Um, wow. and, and now it's going to be gentrified. It's going to change. Yeah. So I think that that's probably a difference between generations, you know, yeah. especially in the older cities where, where mm-hmm. ethnic groups tended to. Right. So yeah. then was it tough for you being the only Ukrainian kid on the block? No, it was it was a very good neighborhood where everybody was blue collar. Um, so, uh, you know, it was different though. Um, and uh, a little different cultural values. One of the funny stories when I was a kid was we had, every, there were corner groceries. I mean, every block there was a corner grocery. Ours was uh, Zappia's, uh, Frank Zappia. So, uh, Frank Zappa? Zappia. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, almost. Yeah. But uh, it was funny. I remember one day, you know, I'd shop there several times a week. And uh, one day he said to me, uh, what's your sister doing? And I said, oh, well, she's in college, you know. And, uh, he says, that's what I heard. What the hell is she going to college for? Girls don't go to college. What she? I said, well, she wants to be a school teacher. you got to go to college for that. Yeah. Jesus. What the hell? Your family says they all go to college. They don't want to work. He says, you know, get a job. And, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a blue-collar neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, why on earth would you go to school? So that was the one thing that was a little different about our family. Everybody mixed in real well. But uh, it, in our house, there was my cousins downstairs and myself, and we all went to college. Yeah. Very few of the other folks went to college. Why do you Why do you think that is? Why What What was it within your family that was like? Was it like you will go to college? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And oddly, it was my neither of my parents graduated high school. Huh. Yeah. So they placed a premium on. Education. You know, they really loved it, um, and my father went back and got his GED, and he eventually took courses, and he actually taught some college courses because he's a policeman. Oh, uh, wow. But uh, 
Um, but the uh, they placed a high value on education, and so did the church, the, the Ukrainian community I was in, really big on education. Hmm. There were 23 kids in my um, eighth grade graduating class, and, and uh, it was a parish school, and uh, we spoke English. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank God, because I would I would have been lost. Um, but um, there were nine boys, 14 girls, um, and that was back in, what, 67 we graduated. Uh, out of the nine boys, I think there's five that have doctorates and six that have graduate degrees. Wow. Yeah. And there were a couple of girls I know who became physicians. I don't know. One physician, one dentist. Wow. So. Yeah. And you went on to get your PhD. PhD. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So. I mean, you, you identify pretty heavily as Ukrainian. That's one of the first things we talked about. Just not, not, I really. the name. not really, but I figure it's entertaining to yeah, talk about. Yeah, well, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you grew up you know, going to a Ukrainian school, right? Like a Ukrainian sure, parish church, school. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's the, I would say that you identify pretty heavily as that. If, I mean, at least during your childhood, you know, you had to have, right? Yeah, to some extent. You know, I've always said that there's a difference, uh, at least that I noticed with Ukrainians. Um, I'm, I'm reluctant to say things, uh, you know, that's that's going to go out in public because I don't have anything to really back it up. But um, no data, and as a psychologist, you should have data. But um, I think there was a difference, a generational difference. My family um, came over World War One, uh, before World War One, during World War One, mostly before, and probably to escape the Austria-Hungary Empire mm-hmm. and the draft and everything else. But they also came because they really wanted to come to America, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it was the land of uh, you know where uh, their streets were paved with gold and all the uh, fences were made out of sausage links. Um, <laughs> seriously, that's what they said. Really, they really wanted to be here. I was in school with a number of students like that, where we were like third generation. Um, our parents had been born here. We had been born here, and they wanted. And these folks really wanted to Americanize. Mm-hmm. They wanted to be Americans. Period. You know, they had the culture and traditions and stuff, but for uh, you know social things. But really wanted to be Americans. The gen- there was another generation though that kind of escaped during the period of World War II, mm-hmm. and so my peers were the first generation born in this country, um, and those parents. It was more of an escape then I think um, everybody's different, obviously. But a lot of them, it was really to just escape Russian domination, German domination. And I'm not sure that they had the same desire to be Americans. Right. Um, and they, they tended not to integrate as much. Yeah. And uh, um, still, uh, still largely married within the community, social clubs, everything is all in the community. Hmm. Whereas, no, I was always... Uh, more mainstream, right. you know, with the uh, just just joining the little league or the boys club or this and that, and it was something all of us did. Yeah, not that group of folks. They did their socializing in clubs that were Ukrainian clubs yeah. and youth groups and stuff. And that's, okay, that's where they stayed. Yeah, it was interesting. It is. So, why psychology? Did you know when you went to school that you wanted to do psychology? Not an idea, no. No, and my background, you know, it was not something, and psychology back then was not something that people spoke about favorably. Um, if you look at movies from the 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, there was this uh, caricature of shrinks hmm. um, that was uh, pretty negative. Um, but uh, 
I think I got interested in high school. I did a science thing project and mapped out areas of the brain, which I just thought was fascinating. I think it was freshman year of high school, and, and I thought, wow, each part of the brain has a different part. That is really cool, a different <laughs> responsibility. Yeah. And that kind of got me going. And then I thought about, in high school, what I wanted to do, and I thought, oh, guidance counselor. My guidance counselor shouldn't be. He's gone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he um, wasn't all that great. You know, here, here's some books. Look at these. See what college <laughs> you want to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I thought I could do that because, you know, I started getting into it and researching it, you know, where I wanted to go to college and things. So I thought, that's what I'll do. And that's sort of like psychology, I think. Yeah. So I got a new um, first year graduate, uh, first year college, took some psychology course, took intro, and then took two more in freshman year. And um, what uh, one of the upperclassmen uh, approached me in, uh, I think, second year, end of first year. And I was taking experimental, which is a heavy duty course. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was doing well. And he said, So what are you going to do? I said, Well, I think it might be a guidance counselor. He said, What about clinical psychology? I said, What's that? Uh, <laughs> and he explained, well, you, you work with you know, people, with clients. And, uh, and so then I said, oh, let me find out more about it. And that's, yeah. that's when I got interested. I loved psychology. Yeah. Um, and the idea of working with people also appealed to me greatly. But I loved all of psychology. Yeah. Not just the clinical working with patients. I the social psychology, the learning, the, all that stuff. I mean, yeah. I still always, history, everything. Yeah. So then, how did you end up working with, with the VA? Was that a goal of yours when you got into clinical psychology? Not so much. I looked into the military. I, I was in the draft. I was in the only college class, the only year uh, in this country ever, where college kids didn't have a deferments. Really? Yeah. So I was in freshman year of college, and some of my classmates were gone um, during the year. Yeah. But I got a real high number, so I didn't have to go. So I finished college. I looked into in getting in um, and uh, ultimately decided not to. Um, into the military? Into the military, yeah. yeah. But, what, uh, why, what was your, I'm curious, what, what was your original impulse to join to begin with before you decided not to? Uh, a sense of uh, duty, sense of country. Yeah. Um, and um, I just thought that if I added that on to the, years of schooling I'd never really start my life uh, <laughs> <laughs> just keep deferring everything yeah so anyway and I didn't really pick the VA as a career choice because of those same reasons it really it was 1980 it was a there was big recession uh, unemployment was huge it was much worse than it was in 2008 um, yeah, I, I'm trying to remember the numbers but I think it was like 11% Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, people were getting out of school. It was very tough to find jobs. Um, uh, my classmates and I were getting out in 1981 or so, and getting a job was like ridiculous. Uh, we're getting offers for jobs, but you know, for twelve thousand dollars, fourteen thousand dollars. This is which, after college, or this is after, after PhD. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh wow! Okay. So it was like crazy. So I had pieced together three part-time jobs, um, and I had I had actually uh, interned in the VA. Um, and then I bumped into a, a friend, and he said, "Hey, you know, there's a, a part-time job we're not advertising that uh, fill in and whatever." And I said, "Okay," so I did that, and then um, that was in addition to the other part-time jobs and whatnot. Yeah. And then I got there, and I liked it, and um, 
the chief liked me a lot, and there was an opportunity to do some medical psychology, which is what I really like, as opposed to uh, psychiatric uh, patients. And so that was it. So I said, yeah, I'll do that. So what is the difference? Can you walk me through the difference between medical psychology and, and psychiatric patients? Um, yeah, when people think of psychologists and psychiatrists, uh, they tend to think of uh, people who are crazy, um, or people who are you know, uh, highly disturbed, um, you know, schizophrenic, bipolar, or severe depressions, mm-hmm. um, and um, things like that, um, or whose problems are all psychiatric in nature, anxiety problems, uh, things like that, mood yeah. problems. Um, and uh, in psychology, I, I really, I, I trained in all those areas. My dissertation was in substance abuse, and uh, my first publication was in schizophrenia and stuff, so we covered all that. Mm-hmm. But I also had the opportunity to work in medical psych, first in neuropsychology, um, assessing people's brain injuries and things like that. Um, and I really became attracted to it, uh, maybe because I didn't have a lot of success uh, healing people who had psychiatric problems. I don't know. <laughs> but I also didn't enjoy it as much as I liked working with medical patients. So the medical side is working with people who have severe medical problems of different types and, um, and helping them adjust to that. Um, so I was uh, trained as a neuropsychologist. I wound up in my first job, they had a new position that was just starting. The field of gerontology was is a brand new field, really. Sitting can, gerontology? Gerontology, the study of, of aging. Oh, okay. And it re- that really was a pretty new field in the, in the 70s. It really started. Um, and uh, so this is here now. We're talking 82, 83. Uh, so they had a department uh, just starting up to work with the elderly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the VA was really leading the effort because... Uh, the World War II veterans were approaching retirement age, yeah. uh, and that was by far the biggest bulk of veterans in the history of this country. Yeah. Um, so that was it. So I, uh, there were no courses at the time, um, very few courses, uh, but you just I had to learn, and yeah. that was fine. And then those of us who learned wound up teaching these courses. <laughs> <laughs> right. But um, so I, I got into medical psychology, with working with elderly folks, and um, classic thing. Okay, I'll say this because I always like telling this because people always say, "What's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist?" And the simple answer that you hear uh, lay people sometimes say is, "Well, psychiatrists can give medicines, mm-hmm. and they are medical doctors, and that's true." Although there are Illinois, for instance, and several other states just passed legislation that. With training, psychologists can prescribe and whatnot, really, which I'm not a big fan of. Uh, but uh, most people are a big fan of that, but it, and, and it can be a benefit to different certain patients. Mm-hmm. But um, the difference that I like to emphasize is that psychologists actually go to school a lot longer um, than psychiatrists. Than psychiatrists, really? yeah, yeah. Psychologists, you have to have an undergraduate degree in psychology, uh, which means you got to have 30 or so credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you spend however long it takes graduate school, four, five, six, seven years, um, and get out. Uh, but what you're doing is you're doing your internships and your clinical and stuff, uh, clinical training, um, but you're also studying what's normal. And that's the differentiation I always like to make, is that psychiatrists, it's a disease model. They, they study medicine, um, and it's a very disease model, and they have four years of training as, as their or residency. It might be three years, actually, in most cases. It could be four, 
um, six weeks in medical school, and undergraduate could be anything they want. Whereas we're spending four years of college and six to seven years at graduate school. So we study what's normal. That's why we wind up working in places um, that are more medical and rehab settings. At rehab Institute of Chicago. Um, at Heinz, we have actually unique situ had a unique situation. They still have it. I don't, I'm not there. I'm retired. Uh, but they had uh, traditional rehab, which is stroke patients, heart attack patients, head traumas. Mm -hmm. um, they've got a, a, a specialty uh, head trauma rehab program. Um, we had the Blind Center Rehabilitation for Blind Patients, uh, Spinal Cord Injury Rehabilitation, uh, and then Geriatrics, which is where I was, in Geriatric Rehabilitation, Extended Care. Um, and what you're dealing with is people who, in many cases, have had absolutely devastating physical medical uh, issues mm -hmm. um, that has just altered their life, um, paralysis, blindness, um, uh, cognitive changes uh, and I like to always say that the reason that psychologists get hired for those positions is because we also know what's normal um, what, what do you mean when you say that like we know what's, what's normal. normal what's normal learning what's normal memory hmm. what's normal sensation and perception um, when you took if any if, if when you went to college and I know you were a psychology major and a lot of people who've gone to college have taken psychology courses. If you think back to those courses, most of what you studied in those courses was normal behavior, developmental psychology, normal adolescence and childhood, uh, memory and learning, um, social psychology. It's all about how people function normally. Mm -hmm. And we also study what's abnormal in the DSM, Diagnostic Statistic Manual, and, you know, and all the different diagnoses and, and that stuff too. But it's a good mix. Mm -hmm. Most of the patients that I saw in geriatrics, and then the second half of my career spent in the Blind Rehab Center, um, were people who did not have a diagnosable psychiatric condition. But they had psychological issues. Um, they were suddenly or slowly blind mm -hmm. uh, or infirm uh, and uh, with devastating kinds of consequences. And, how do you help somebody through that? Well, what's normal? Uh, it's, they didn't have a psychiatric condition, but they had tremendous adjustment issues. Yeah. So, and I think that's where that's why I was impartial to psychology for physicians like that, because you know we know how to help people in normal situations. Yeah. So you just posed this question, and I'll pose it back to you. You just said, "How do you help somebody through that? How do you? What do you, I mean, when people are are dealing with that kind of trauma, how do you help them through that?" Okay, um, how long do we have? Uh, <laughs> as long as you want. I'll give you, I'll give you a quick answer that, that will help. Um, you help by helping people adjust um, their perceptions and um, their cognitions about it, their understanding of what this means. Let me give you a, an example. It's, it'll, be, it'll be easier. Um, what do you think of, what does anyone think of when they think of somebody who is blind? Um, tremendous stereotypes there. Uh, it's a very powerful word. You know, psychologists do research with that, you know, with adjective checklists to say, okay, how many of these adjectives apply to um, the blind? And by and large, 
all the adjectives that people check are extremely negative. Um, what we're trying to do when we're working with blind people is teach them that it's not all negative, it's just different. Hmm. And that it, there are other ways to conquer problems. Uh, there are other ways of doing things. As human beings, we're largely visual. Estimates you know, are that we do 90% of our activities visually. Wow. So losing that is a tremendous loss. However, we always uh, used to say, and they still say in the field of blind rehab, that we can still teach you how to do 90 to 95% of what you used to do non-visually. Hmm. So getting people to understand, first of all, giving them hope, showing them by example that there's other people who are blind who are out there who are holding jobs, who are functioning, uh, who are able to... Uh, be mobile in public and travel independently and um, and handle their own finances and do their own cooking and shopping and laundry um, and then also to teach them to develop a different mindset that it's not inferior it's different mm -hmm. um, and that's really tough that is very tough because we're you're dealing against lots of stereotypes that have been there forever plus the individual's um, reaction uh, sometimes catastrophic reaction to what's happened to them. Mm -hmm. So all these old stereotypes really take root and, and they, they hold on to those. But um, uh, so I don't know if that, that's a quick yeah. answer. Yeah. So was it outpatient? Oh. My program was inpatient. Okay. And um, there's a lot of advantages to inpatient. Um, we took people here at Heinz. Heinz is the oldest blind center in, in the VA system. Uh, it was established in 1948. Um, and uh, at one point, we're, our catchment area was the entire United States. Wow. Um, there are now, I believe, uh, 12 blind centers around the country. Heinz is still the oldest, still one of the largest. And our catchment area was a 13-state area in the Midwest. So we would fly people in. Um, and uh, they would stay with us and train them. One of the advantages of having a, a residential program is that there's a lot of chance for social comparison. Mm -hmm. uh, there aren't that many people statistically who are blind, and you're not likely to bump into them. And the nature of the disorder itself tends to be isolating. Yeah. People don't go out because they don't know how to travel if they haven't had training. Plus, they're... They know they're going to get a lot of pity. They tend to avoid social interactions. Um, so it's a very isolating kind of disorder. Mm -hmm. um, having them come together, find out that there are other people who are just like them and other people who are succeeding and having staff members who themselves are blind and functioning um, really begins to help change the attitude. Yeah. Uh, so... It's just a wonderful, wonderful process to watch as, as it works. It doesn't always work, but, wow. yeah. So, I'm fascinated. I, I don't know why I didn't even think of this, that, of course, you worked with World War II veterans, at least toward the beginning of, of your... Well, yeah, but, and at, at Heinz, at, in the, uh, at the Blind Center, um, if you're a veteran, uh, there, are, there are always rules that change in terms of who's eligible for services from the VA hospitals. Right now, it's a very liberal policy, meaning that just about any veteran can get help at the VA mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and medications. Uh, and 
But there are certain conditions that Congress uh, and the government have always seen as special needs. Um, blind and spinal cord are two examples. Uh, and so if you're a veteran, even if you haven't been injured in the service, even if you have a large income, uh, if you become legally blind or uh, uh, have a spinal cord injury, you can come to the VA, period. Uh, and that's always been the case. Um, why am I going off on that tangent? World um, War II? Veterans? World War II. Okay. We, so we saw a lot of World War II veterans. Uh, I saw a lot um, in my time there. Uh, they may not have become blind during the service. We had people who had just come back from Afghanistan and Iraq who had just become blind. Right. Um, but uh, we had lots of elderly gentlemen um, and a few women who uh, late in life developed some of the more common um, uh, ocular disorders that lead to blindness. Uh, in this country, the big ones are macular degeneration, um, glaucoma, uh, and diabetic retinopathy. Mm -hmm. So those are things that might pop up. They, they are much higher incidence as we get older. Right. And so I have a lot of those cases, too. Gotcha. So can you talk about, I don't know if, you, if you'll be able to talk about this or if, or if you'll be willing, but can you talk about, I guess, the, sh the shift in patients? You started, started off seeing World War II veterans. By the end of it, like you said, you, you were seeing veterans of Afghanistan and Iraq and, and everything in between. I assume that you saw some of your peers, you know, Vietnam veterans as well. Mm -hmm. uh, can you just talk about the, the shift that you saw in the patients, if there was one? What were the differences, I guess? Um, all through my career, I saw a mixture of all those, really, mm -hmm. even up till the end. Um, not that many World War II veterans um, around. They're, they're still around, but... Um, um, it's a tough one, and it's one that we talked about a lot in the field, too. I think that, um, you know, losing vision at different times in life has different impacts. Um, some people are born congenitally blind, a um, whole different ballgame. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, in the VA, I didn't uh, work with those uh, kinds of uh, clients, those kinds of individuals. Um, Losing life, losing life, losing sight um, uh, at a young age, traumatically, or from, from disease, uh, mm -hmm. whatever, um, you see different reactions than you do later in life. Um, and it, it, I could talk about generalizations. I mean, one of the things that, of course, I, I always am careful talking about these generalizations is because everybody is really unique, and that's what makes psychology great. I mean, if why it was great for me to be a psychologist because I enjoyed the fact that every day every every client was different mm -hmm. and unique um, but I think with older folks um, there, there tended to be a, a little more passivity um, toward their blindness to just accept that oh, this is just one more change uh, there's nothing I can do about it I you know there were exceptions to that that were really notable but but uh, saying, what can you do for me? If I can't see, I can't do anything. I don't want to do anything. And the attitudes were that way. Yeah. Younger folks, altogether different. Um, especially some of the um, folks we saw with traumatic injuries coming back from overseas. Uh, by and large, uh, they were of the uh, school of, okay, show me what you're going to do for me. Because yeah. um, uh, I'm not going to take this lying down. Um, and, uh, you know, I want to start playing sports again. Uh, let's go. Uh, yeah. You know, let me add it. And um, 
it's an overgeneralization, but sure. but it's uh, but it was very different, um, and and perhaps it also reflected, perhaps that society is a little more tolerant of people with disabilities and people who grew up in the last twenty years, maybe they're a little more tolerant to that. Say, okay, it doesn't have to be the end of the world. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah, definitely. So I'm also interested in you went from uh, with Jared. Say geriatrics, gerontology. Gerontology, that's the one. You switched at some point. Sure. You switched at one point from working with old people to working with blind people. How did that switch come about? Um, It was really just an existential kind of process. I mean, uh, one of the things that I always did with clients, uh, I had I have much more of an existential philosophy for my own life and and, uh, and weighed that a lot with the therapy that I did, uh, weighed that in, helping people realize they still had choices. They may be limited, but they still had choices. And what were they, what were they choosing to do? How are they going to live their life? They may be 75, they may have had a stroke, um, but uh, so uh, things that they did before uh, may not be possible. But there are new options now, and what are you going to do about them? Yeah. Um, and I really did that uh, in my own life all the time, which was to take a look and say, okay, um, I'm, I've been on this path for a while. I've been in the VA for a while. Uh, I interviewed for jobs outside the VA. Uh, I thought, you know, just because I'm in a path doesn't mean I don't have choices here. Right. So let me see what I want to do. And and really think about that, and it's it's unsettling, but it's I think it's a real positive thing to do, and um, and I love gerontology, and I thought that's it. I'll probably stay here forever, and uh, if I'm lucky, they'll name a building after me. Um, but uh, yeah, pretty grandiose. Uh, <laughs> We've all got dreams. It's gonna be no. I don't really want a building, um, but. Uh, uh, I started getting discouraged a little bit for various reasons. Things things had been changing um, where I was working, and I also was feeling a need to just challenge myself and do something else. Um, and uh, I'd always been curious about the Blind Center, um, and uh, the woman who was there uh, probably I could see was going to retire at some point. Um, so I just started getting involved there to try it out and see if I would like that, hmm. and uh, I did a lot. So I just lobbied for the position and, and uh, uh, made a change. So was it, it was a, a big shift? Was it a big adjustment for you in terms of how you practiced and how you dealt with clients? Yes. Obviously, it's two different, yeah. entirely different populations. But how did that? How did that adjustment happen for uh, you? It was um, it was a big change, and I, and I it, it helped me understand more uh, people who go through midlife changes or change careers or mm-hmm. my own wife when she was going back to work. Uh, you know, uh, after being out of her profession for a while, uh, helped me realize, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of stressful, and um, I had, there was a whole new field that I had to learn all about uh, because I really didn't know much at all. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that's that's a funny thing too that we talked about. Um, I talked about with other psychologists, which is how much of your training was with blind people, or how much class time was ever spent talking about. <laughs> it's a scary topic that people don't want to talk about, even psychologists. So, anyway, so gearing up, uh, learning what I didn't know, and also realizing that I, I needed to relate to the these clients a little bit differently than the ones that uh, I had been working with. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so, uh, and it was a little stressful, you know, am I going to be able to learn, you know, I'm 40-something years old now, uh, how will that go? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, Seemed yeah. to have worked out all right for you? Oh, it worked out great. <laughs> Best thing I ever did. Really? Yeah. Good oh, for yeah. you. Very valuable work, and it's really funny because uh, when you first tell someone, a lay person, you know, oh yeah, I work with the blind, like, oh my God, well thank God there's people like you doing that. Um, <laughs> that a must, saint. That must be terribly depressing. Actually, it was wonderful. Well, you saw people, we saw people walking out of our place, uh, where they started and where they were, uh, unbelievable, nothing yeah. like it. Uh, and, I, and the other thing I always tell people is, if you think we're spending tax dollars poorly, you may be right, but let me take you on a tour of the Blind Center because I'll tell you what, after spending an, uh, an hour or two there going around and seeing what's being done, you're going to feel a whole lot better about how your tax dollars are being spent. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Well, it's unquestionably a noble pursuit to, to, be helping, you know, to be helping that population specifically. So good for you. Um, I'm curious. I mean, I know you said that it wasn't wasn't difficult. It was very rewarding. But there had to have been some difficult patients and some difficult days and difficult sessions. How do you, as a psychologist, um, shed that? How do you how do you get over that? You know, how do you not take that home? Mm. That's a good one because that's that's uh, that's something that again a lot of lay people always will say. Uh, how could you do that? Oh, listen, everybody's problems. Oh, yeah. that's terrible. Uh, I think I think a part of it is um, it probably some of us are more inclined to be willing to do that, um, and it's part of our nature that we can tolerate it a little bit better. Um, so I don't know. Just give my genes credit for some of that because I think there's there's something to that. People who get attracted to different helping professions, um, it seems more natural to them. Part of the training with psychology is, is learning how to best help people. You're not going to be their friend. Um, you're going to be their therapist. Um, and it, it's a very uh, involved relationship, uh, and there's lots of rules, really, that, uh, that go with that. You're, you're not going to be their friend. You're, you're going to be relating to them in a way that's unique, and that's what's going to really help them. Um, Part of that means that you do have to maintain some professional uh, distance, um, and um, part of it is training to how to cope with those issues, uh, because some of these things can be really overwhelming. Um, and um, so I think that between training and 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 doing it, um, it uh, it's something that you learn how to cope with and try not to bring home. Um, I still found that there were times when you do bring it home. When I first got into geriatrics, um, I'm using those terms, geriatric is more of a term for illness in, in people who are old as, as opposed to gerontology, which is the study of mm-hmm. old age. But, uh, but my clients were geriatric. They were, they were ill. And, um, and uh, I dealt with a lot of dying uh, individuals and families uh, whose uh, family member was dying. Um, and um, that can be real depressing and you do take that home and I think it took a couple of years probably my first couple of years there uh, working with other people who had been doing this for years longer than I had to learn how they coped with it and to, and to find out that yeah you know what 
this is another uh, thing in, in our society. You know, we don't like talking about death. Um, we don't want to think about it, um, and especially our own mortality. And uh, um, but it's reality, and it is going to happen. And so, it's a gift in some ways to be able to be with people as they go through the process, because so many people don't want to be there, but to help them make their peace the best they can and their families and, and to help resolve stuff so that it doesn't cause problems for the next five years or generations, uh, yeah. you know. So that was, um, that was a process. And I think with the blind, it was a little bit easier because I'd already worked with lots of people with devastating illnesses. So um, that, was, that wasn't so bad at all. Um, but I also decided to retire because after a while, it was getting to me a little bit. And the frustrations. Way? Frustrations? Yeah. Well, uh, how come? Uh, I think I, you know, I, it, the, the easy way to say this is to say that I was burning out. I don't know. I don't know whether I just have, in uh, the way that I conceptualize it for myself, which is not very scientific at all, and not very much like a psychologist is to say that I, maybe I had just a, in a, a certain amount of caring <laughs> and do and do gooder in yeah. me, and that I was kind of exhausting that depletion, depleting that supply of whatever energy did that. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what it felt like. Now, how did so, you recognize that within yourself? You know, how was that manifesting itself? I guess. Well, one of the things that all therapists have. Um, uh, is a reaction to any client that they're working with, and the, you know the technical term was was uh, countertransference, um, and uh, so we all have reactions, and the and the, the the key is of course to manage those reactions to not act on them. Um, so uh, I may have a client that uh, is doing things that I think are are very bad or I, uh, that are destructive for that person. Um, or I may not like them, but to help them, I can't judge them, and I can't tell them they're doing the wrong thing. Although, as a human being, I have a reaction, I have to keep those separate and keep them outside of the, the session. Right. Um, and, um, and one of the things that uh, people will say, I, I used to teach my interns and fellows, is um, if you're having a really strong countertransference, you'll know about it because you'll be thinking about these clients when you go home at night mm. uh, and dreaming about them and other things. And at some degree, to some degree, that's normal. You have to. It's part of your day. But when it starts where you're just thinking about this person all the time, you're having some problems. You need to talk to somebody else about how you're handling this client because you're having feelings that are too strong that are just uh, staying with you all the time. So I had more and more of those feelings. Gotcha. Does that help you? Yeah. That's yeah. it. And actually, that you could objectify and measure. Um, <laughs> but I, I, was, I was getting a little more frustrated. So gotcha. And I said, okay, I think I was still effective. Um, but I said, you know what? Um, this is not a bad time to leave. Yeah. And how long ago was that? I retired three years ago. And how's it been going since then? Oh, it was a great choice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Playing a lot of golf, are you? Yeah, I almost got out this morning. Yeah, um, it's not bad outside right now. I was out last weekend. So. Were you really? Oh, sure. Oh, good Lord. I'll be out tomorrow. <laughs> I can't even believe... There are courses that are open? 
Yeah, they're not very. They're not the best courses, but it's yeah. okay. It's but gone. They let you out there. Yeah. 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 Now, how often do you play? Last year I played. I keep track of statistics. Uh, I played 122 <laughs> rounds, and I played 87 different courses. So I like to travel and just yeah. go around and play. Do you just go all around Illinois, or do you go... Oh, well, yeah, not so much vacations last year. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, all around Illinois. and There's a lot of golf courses in Illinois. Yeah. I don't know why that is. Um, not much else to do here. <laughs> Chicago has more golfers per capita than any other metropolitan area in the country. Really? It's very strange. Growing up in New York, and, Ca- and I got into golf as a blue-collar kid. How do you get... Well... There was a caddy bus that would pick us up <clears throat> in Yonkers and take us up to Scarsdale, uh, um, gotcha. which is like Kenilworth in Chicago. Oh, sure. Yeah. Fancy. Fancy. Oh, yeah. Fancy. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. Extremely wealthy. And um, so I took up golf because I was a caddy and got clubs and balls and everything for free, yeah. and we could play for free on Monday. So when I came to Chicago, I was shocked because I, I, uh, I was playing golf, and everybody out there was, uh, it was a big cross-cultural section. Uh, there were plumbers and electricians and firemen and, and, and uh, business people, and uh, everybody plays golf. I don't know what it is about Chicago, but all the blue collar and everybody play, in New York, no way. Hmm. It was not the way. So there's a lot of courses. Yeah. So you do golf, and, I, and you said that you, you do cross-stitching as well? Yeah. How did you get into that? That was really funny. It's a good story, though. Um, <laughs> I, I'm a storyteller. Good. That's what this is for. I know, I know. Um, my wife was pregnant with our first two children, twins, and it was not going well. She spent the last six weeks of her pregnancy in the hospital. Oh, wow. And she had had some uh, cruel, which is a type of sewing. It's not cross-stitch. It's, anyway, uh, sewing people <laughs> will know the difference. But sure. you're making pictures with thread. Gotcha. And um, so she was in the hospital, but she, uh, and she had this thing that she was doing. It was a Christmas uh, something. And, uh, but she was in such discomfort that she couldn't even do it. So I'd, I'd come in and visit her every day and say, how are you doing? You know, how's that going? Hey, uh, oh, I just, I do it for five minutes and I'm so uncomfortable physically. So I just put it there. She goes, you know what? Take it away from me because I'm disgusted. I have so much time laying here, you know, 24 hours a day and, and I don't, I can't do it. And so now I'm looking at it and I feel guilty about not doing it. So I took it home. So I said, how hard can this be? Maybe I'll do it. It'll be a nice present for her. Yeah. So I did it, and I uh, and I really liked it. So then I started doing some other stuff, and then I did Christmas stockings for the the, the twins, and just kept going and doing that, and um, and been doing it ever since. So that's been going on about thirty two years or so. What was funny was I did some pictures. Um, and uh, some of them were hanging in the house, and my parents came to visit from New York, and. They said, well, that's nice. And my wife said, well, you know, uh, no, I didn't do those. Your son did those. And they were like, oh, that's nice, too. <laughs> and I was like, what? You don't find that unusual? Everybody always finds that very unusual. And they're like, well, no, you're like your, you're like your grandfather. And his grandfather had died when I was four, so I don't remember him very well. Yeah. I remember him a little. And uh, I said, what do you... I said, he sewed? Oh, yeah, Grandpa Federica sewed all... He was... I said... No, Grandma, the pillowcases, the bed sheets, the tablecloth. Oh, no, Grandma never touched a needle. Grandpa huh. was, the, was the guy who sewed, did all the embroidery and stuff. And I'm like, 
Holy crap, so it must be in the genes. Yeah, it's in your genes. So what is it that you get out of it? I've never done it. My wife does a little bit of it, but why? what is it that you get out of it? Why do you enjoy it? Oh, um, there is a, a, a tremendous satisfaction of completing something, of really working hard at something, um, and, uh, and, and having a skill that, you know, not everybody has. It's kind yeah. of fun to, you know, feel like you're doing something different, unique. Um, and then seeing it take shape and actually having a completed product when it's done. Um, and the other satisfaction is uh, making it as a present for somebody. So I've done lots of baby bibs and uh, samplers for weddings, um, things like that, you know, uh, and um, Christmas stockings for all the grandkids. Um, so there's satisfaction giving it there too, and I think it really came into play as um, uh, being a psychologist because that work is hardly ever done. You're always left with oh, more to do. There's no there's, feeling of completion and yeah, gotcha. and, and and our our for instance with the the blind center, um, our folks might be tremendously improved that we could measure that and say yes they can handle their finances they can cook for themselves they can do you know and then they would go back home to ohio or kentucky or minnesota or wherever they're from and um we keep track but you don't really know how they're doing right um and uh and you knew that they also had uh sore spots that they needed to keep working on that that wasn't over you know you can't keep somebody forever in fact it would be horrible to keep them too long yeah. because then they don't have to live in the real world yeah. um yeah, so yeah so this was that stuff was like great because then you finish it move on to the next thing right. um, say i did that whereas yeah whereas with the work with the clients a lot of times it's it's never finished you yeah. never know how it's going to turn out yeah so uh, one thing i forgot to ask you before you were saying um like when you switched populations um from old people to to blind patients that you, it was a different way of relating to them. I'm curious, did you have, do you know how to read Braille? No. Okay. No. So did, did you have to do any, it's fine. Oh. Eh, whatever. Let's just wait for it. Oh, yeah, my wife is very fast. Oh, yeah, she is. Right on. Okay, so, I mean, did you do any training where it was like, you know, walk around with your eyes closed or something like, just oh, to yeah. get, okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was wonderful. Um, they put me into a very intensive uh, uh, program of training. All the people who worked at our center um, have master's degree or above, uh, and all have had training. There's, there's a handful of schools. Uh, I, I'm going to guesstimate that there might be about six to eight schools around the country that have master's or, or uh, programs in blind rehabilitation. Um, and uh, that largely falls into two classes. Of training, one is strictly mobility, how to work with the cane. Mm. That's one master's program you could go to, or the other is called rehabilitation or living skills, which is everything else under the sun: typing, computer skills, uh, kitchen finances, every every practical applied kind of thing you need to do. So, they in their training in their graduate schools, uh, they go through intensive training with the blindfold with. Imitating how to function as a blind person first. Um, they're all trained in Braille and whatnot. I had the opportunity and didn't take it. Um, but um, so they're very intensely uh, trained. 
And when I came to work, uh, they put me through uh, weeks of uh, similar training, working uh, uh, under the blindfold. Um, mm. I'm saying that because if there's somebody in the field, there, there's a counter school that says you don't have to operate under the blindfold, but, uh, but most people do uh, mm. to learn. And so that, was, that certainly helped me uh, be more empathic with what was going on and to, and to become more aware and to also find out that you actually can do things. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and also to have some empathy for what folks were going through, how frustrating it could be. And I'm only doing it for you know, an hour at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, I get time off when the session is over. Right. Uh, they don't get to take that blindfold off. Yeah. So yeah, and we did the same thing with all the trainees that came through. And I did a lot of training of psychology, uh, uh, doctoral interns, and, and postdoc fellows and stuff. So we would make sure they went through all that stuff too. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it was really good. In fact, what I also did was I started a, a program for all of the interns, even the ones that didn't train with me, to go through uh, at least an afternoon of that mm-hmm. because. It was the only training they got working with somebody who's visually impaired yeah. or blind um, in their career. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so is that a literal term? Like blindfold? You actually had a blindfold? Blindfold, yeah. Okay, yeah. so okay, I didn't know if that was just a euphemism for what they were doing. Under the blindfold. No, okay. it, it, that's, and that's a traditional way of training. Uh, there are some fo- newer folks who said, ah, you don't need to do that. Yeah. So it's okay. It's a big, it's a hot, it's a hot topic. If, if we were in a conference now there'd be people screaming at us yeah uh, <laughs> luckily at luckily it's just, maybe somebody the person who called just now was uh, yeah, yeah. somehow hearing so I'm also curious switching gears how did you and your wife meet uh, we met in high school oh really yeah um, and uh, I was dating a girl through most of high school that was on the volleyball team and she was on the volleyball team so yeah ah. but we didn't date in high school um, and uh, and then the girl that I was dating in high school uh, dumped me after we graduated. So, um, but I was prepared because I could see it coming. So I had like gotten a lot of phone numbers before we graduated high school. So you weren't just emotionally prepared. You were you were physically prepared. you were prepared for this. I, you know, <laughs> I, I kind of got used to being dumped and figured out how to cope with it. Uh, <laughs> No, but there were a lot of women that I would have, young women, girls, I don't know which, adolescent, uh, uh, that I would have dated. So I got a lot of phone numbers. Yeah. And freshman year of college, I, st- I actually stayed locally. So uh, so I just had all these numbers. And yeah. I just would call somebody up every week and go out with somebody. So we started then very briefly, a couple of weeks. And then uh, uh, I was too busy trying to date as many people as I could. <laughs> <laughs> And then we got back together for about a year in junior college. And then I could see it was getting real serious and I wasn't ready for that. So we broke up again. And then uh, when I got into graduate school, we got back together. And then we got married. So, so. did she come with you to Chicago no. for graduate school? No, I was out here. And then uh, just uh, we started corresponding yeah. uh, on the phone and whatnot. And, uh, uh, and then I realized, hey, you know, this is probably the one. And... Uh, I just I think earlier I was just not ready to get married, but yeah. now I was like, well, I'm not ready now either. But, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm more ready. <laughs> and she was still in New York, and yeah, then you brought yeah. her out here. Then she came out, yeah, wow. Northwestern. Okay. 
hospital, yeah. All right. So I think that this is how we started, and i got to go back to it. The original question was, how did you get from Loyola to living out here? Like, what, what was the journey to... How did you get to Lombard? Why did you decide Lombard? Oh, man. Um, we were living downtown. It was great. It was, the housing was Northwestern University housing. It, it was cheap. It was unbelievable. We lived on top of Eli's Place for Steaks, uh, right on Chicago Avenue there. Uh, Carriage House is the name of it. And it was great. Um, and then I finally got out of school. Um, and uh, we were talking about, well, I have a family, so talking about having kids and uh, living in the small apartment, living downtown, didn't seem appealing. We were both, uh, had been used to two flats and whatnot and yeah. backyards and things like that. So we said, okay, so we'll start looking for a house. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we did. And at that time, remember I was talking about the salaries being low, it was a time of hyperinflation in the late 70s when Jimmy Carter was president and inflation was running 13%, 15%. It was incredible numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, CDs at the bank were paying 9, 11, 13%. Um, so mortgages were running 15 and 16%. So um, I've always been a saver. Um, and so we had some money so we could maybe make a deposit on a house. Um, but the problem was we kept, we just looked at everything in every suburb. We were up to the north suburbs, the west suburbs here, the south suburbs. All the mortgages that we could get were like 15%. And it was just like, I don't think we can afford this. And I was taking, I had all part-time jobs at the time too. We got into, we came out here because they'd advertised that they had these new homes and that they had mortgages for 10.9%. And, uh, that was like a bargain. Yeah. And, uh. So, and the price of the house we could afford with our down payment, and uh, this place went like hotcakes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it just was unbelievable. It was all built in like three months, the 70 units, or 70 homes, oh, yeah. homes. Um, so that's how we got out to Lombard, was by chance. Um, and what happened by chance was we were in the model, and um, looking at the model and kind of, getting the room measurements and whatever because we're thinking about we have to buy furniture and stuff. And I bump into a guy that I interned with from the hospital at Heinz. He lived in a house that you could look out that window and see. He had just bought a house here. So it was kind of funny. And uh, so he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm really looking, you know. He said, oh, we've got this part-time job at Heinz. Uh, oh, so it all came together right then, huh? And your life was never the same. No, it would have been, you know, it's funny, uh, fate, I don't think it's fate, you know, something else would have happened somewhere else, but it just happened that way, and um, And here you are, Yeah. right, and you raised your family in this house, right? Yeah. Three daughters? Three daughters, yeah, and uh, now there's five grandchildren and a sixth on the way. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Are they all? They're not all around here, right? You've got. They're all around here. Okay. Um, yeah, you know that's the other thing. Mobility. You know, he talked about ethnic neighborhoods and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I think it it really is interesting. It depends so much. I, I'm trying to figure that one out myself. Anecdotally, you know, um, my brother, my sister, and I we all left New York, yeah. um, and uh, my parents stayed. You know, and uh, that's that their whole life was there. Um, now my kids, they're local. They're other suburbs, but uh, and then of course the one that 
went to South America for seven and a half years, and now it's in um, uh, D.C. But um, yeah, they're local, so we get to see them. That's nice. Well, thank you. This is <laughs> this is a lot of fun. Did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about or expound upon that we didn't didn't hit? Um, one thing that occurred to me. Let me just add it because it's it's. Uh, it, I'm very proud of it, and that, that probably is uh, why I want to do that. I'm proud that I worked there. The Blind Center of Hines. Um, one other thing for anybody who has any interest in that field or anything at all um, is uh, to look into that. Um, Hines Blind Center, uh, if you get it to talk to people who are in the field, they will tell you that it is probably the premier training grounds for the blind any place in the country, in the world. Um, the VA does wonderful services. If I just want to make a pitch for anyone who might be a veteran or who's thinking about it, you will never find better services. Um, everything that you need will be provided that you can use, um, which is unbelievable because uh, private insurance for blindness, uh, public state systems for blindness do not provide. They provide services. They don't provide everything that we will. We will provide computer systems if somebody is, is going to go back to school or go to work. We'll train them and do it. And um, uh, just have to, I'm going to say this anyway, uh, which is, you may say, well, this guy, you know, what does he know about blind center? Well, ask anybody in the field and they'll tell you. We mentioned Heinz. The other thing was that there's an international hall of fame for the blind in Lexington, Kentucky. And I think it was about 2002 when it opened can't remember exactly um, and it's international um, people from all over the world are are uh, inducted um, and people that you, in the first class there were 12 people okay uh, Helen Keller her teacher Annie father Carol that might be the only people that most of us have ever heard of seven out of the first 12 that were inducted internationally Europe everywhere in the world seven were from Heinz Wow. Yeah, and there have been several more. Uh, so it's, it was a really good place, and it's it's just a really good program for people to know about that. Yeah. So well, it's a, like I said before, it's a really noble thing to devote your life to, and it's it's, it's really great of you. So yeah. I'm glad to talk to you. Glad to know you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks a lot, Nick. Paul. Appreciate it. Okay.